Real quick, if you can think about how you found this podcast, somebody probably shared it with you via text or posted on Instagram. The only way this show grows is through word of mouth. I don't run paid ads. I don't do sponsorship. My only ask is that you continue to pay it forward. So however you found this podcast, please do the same thing. If it was a review, a post, if you just do that, it would mean the world to me and I'm positive it would have an impact on others. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Pain feels mysterious, but how does it actually work? Today, we have Dr. Tom Walters, a board-certified physical therapist with over 13 years of clinical experience. He's here to demystify pain, revealing the latest science and how your brain processes and generates this experience. Dr. Walters will explain key concepts like danger receptors and tissues, pain thresholds, and how psychology and environment shape your perception of pain. He'll also challenge outdated injury rehab dogma with new protocols focused on early gentle movement and why icing injuries isn't always the best solution. I'm really glad he came and talked about this because this is an uphill battle I fought for many years with sports medicine practitioners. I love my athletic trainers. I love my physical therapist. I'm married to one, but this was just something that I fought against for a long time. And now the science is demonstrating that ice may not be the best solution. Dr. Walters brings clarity to the complexity of pain while offering hope, practical solutions, and in future episodes, daily exercises to gain control over your pain. I highly recommend you follow his YouTube channel and get his book, Rehab Science, as these are excellent practical tools that you can use on a daily basis. So let's dive right in and let's lean in and learn from the best. Tom, I am very interested in this subject of pain. We all experience pain in different ways, emotional pain, more specifically physical pain. Where does it come from? How does it work? It's kind of this mystical thing that when it starts, it can be debilitating. And so I'd love for you to kind of just open the door, so to speak, on pain and where it comes from and things that influence it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, pain is such an interesting area of science, and it's really exploded over the last 15 to 20 years and something that I really interested in and I think is helpful with people in pain because there's a lot of myths and sort of misunderstandings about pain and and kind of faulty beliefs and that can lead people in the wrong direction sometimes or it can maybe make the pain worse because it creates anxiety and fear and stress and so you know often pain is kind of inside us and we can't see it and sometimes when you can't see something it can be kind of scary so I think it's helpful for people to kind of understand pain and how that pain system works. And basically, if you look at the main body now, the definition of pain comes from the International Association for the Study of Pain. And they basically now say pain is an emotional or sensory experience that's associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Now, that's a lot. It's kind of a big mouthful. But I think the things to think about are it can have sensory and emotional components. So it can be associated with both of those systems. Most people will think of it as just purely sensory, like it's coming from the tissues of my body. It's just a sensation, which mm. that has changed the thinking on that. And then it can be actual or potential tissue damage. So you could have actual tissue damage, like you you sprain your ankle or you strain your back or something. You have a tissue injury that you can actually identify and that causes pain. 
But there are actually studies showing that we can create pain in people if you just make them believe that tissue damage is going to happen. They do all these kind of crazy studies where they'll um, block people's vision and show them different colors. Like they did one where they show a, a blue color and a red color and they touch them with a metal rod and people think red means hot, blue means cold. And so people will report experiencing pain just based on color and what that means. Or they've got one where they put people's heads in these sort of those old hairdryer kind of things and ladies would get perms and they'd show a gauge and they'd show like they were turning up the intensity and people would report more discomfort, even though the gauge didn't do anything. A lot of people have seen that rubber hand experiment where they, have you ever seen this one where they use the mirror and the rubber hand? And so it's crazy. You can block somebody's at one arm from their view and put a rubber arm there and that block and vision, their brain will start to acquire this rubber arm, take on, they will experience their sensations from that rubber hand. And so they'll touch it at first and kind of integrate this rubber arm into their nervous system. And then at the end, they'll slam it with a hammer or something in the person, you know, so you can, it's crazy what you can do with the nervous system just by making it believe something dangerous is going to happen. So that's kind of the definition now. It's like, it's got emotional and sensory components and actual or potential tissue damage. So how does it work? I mean, in your book, you say pain comes from the brain. So like if I, perceive that I could potentially be in pain? What's the brain telling my body to put myself like to create this sensation of pain? Yeah, ultimately, at the end of the day, pain is a survival mechanism. So it's meant to protect you and keep you alive. And so, you know, years and years ago, it used to be thought that pain came from the body, like you would hurt something, you hurt your finger, and a pain receptor would detect that and it'd go up a pain track. And that would go to a pain area in your brain and you Oh, I have pain. Now they found that's not the case. We have danger receptors in our tissues called nociceptors, these little free nerve endings. Those will detect noxious or dangerous stimuli. They're kind of high threshold receptors. So you have to push on something hard enough. It's got to be something that's a stronger stimulant. So that will, if you activate those nociceptors, they'll send a danger message up the nerve to the spinal cord, up to the brain. And then the brain is going to look at everything in the environment. So even if it, a danger sensor is activated, you might not necessarily have pain if the brain determines this is not a good time to have pain or this is something that's not that big a deal. So there's all these things that are going to weigh in that situation, like how much you've slept, uh, memories, beliefs about this thing, thought patterns. So your threshold test. from pain can be determined by environmental factors and your history with pain? Exactly. Yeah, those factors play a huge role in whether or not the person experiences pain and the intensity of that pain. So even cultural things, like there are certain cultures that will put themselves through these really, you think about firewalking, like things like that, or I often share in the Philippines, they have individuals that would do these voluntary crucifixions at Easter. Oh. And people you do these crazy things that of course are firing their nociceptors and causing some tissue damage, but they won't report that much pain because of the meaning that's carried that act has some positive meaning. You see this in sports all the time, right? Too like high endurance athletes have extremely high pain thresholds, martial artists, you know, these individuals that are doing something that's meaningful, even if something dangerous happens, it has a positive meaning to them and their brain might block it because if you're in a UFC fight, you it's more important to you to block that response and continue the fight and hopefully win rather than feeling pain in that moment might not be useful. So you know, pain now is talked about not so much like a, not a simple sensation. It's more of an experience that comes from the brain. So 
we try to make sure people understand we're not saying that pain is in your head because sometimes patients will hear that pain comes in the brain and they'll think you're saying, oh, it's made up, it's in your head. But that's not what we're saying. We're just saying that it's a emergent kind of experience that's generated by the brain. Mm, super interesting. So what can we do to modulate this? Is How do we build a higher threshold for pain? Yeah, so there's different ways you can think about it. And we try to break pain down into different types. So you can have very mechanical kind of acute pains. You can have pains that are more neuropathic that come from your nervous system, like a sciatica or a carpal tunnel syndrome. And then you can have all the chronic pains. They're often now called persistent pain, just meaning they've been there longer than expected long, you know, most tissues will heal in a certain time frame, And so if pain stays beyond that, we start to wonder if there are changes that are happening in the nervous system. And the pain is maybe not a good reflection of what's actually happening to the tissue anymore. But at the end of the day, really, you can think about rehab in a pretty simple fashion. It's like we want to calm the system down. That's kind of the first step. And that might be a place sometimes where you have temporary rest. Unfortunately, a lot of people will get prescriptions from their doctor. They'll just be like, hey, just rest. And this will get better. And that's okay for a few days, but you don't want that long term. So you're thinking about just from a basic level, I'm going to calm my system down initially. And then I'm going to start incorporating graded doses of stress to basically improve the capacity of the system and expose it to stimuli that are potentially threatening, but in a way that helps it desensitize. It's a graded exposure, a graded exposure type model like would be used in other areas of health, like with uh, mental health disorders and things. So let me get this straight. The rest ice compression elevation that's out for the most part, like if you had an acute ankle sprain, you want to get moving as soon as you can. Yeah. Used to be, they would say, go put your leg up, put ice on it, rest this thing, immobilize it, and then it's going to get better. And you're telling me that you need to get moving. Exactly. We've moved away from a lot of that stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still a place sometimes for just a temporary period of rest, maybe a couple of days, but it's not usually much more than that. In that old rice model, rest, ice, compression, elevation, compression and elevation do still have, are still supported. Ice has pretty much gone away. You'll see it sometimes. It does have research for reducing pain, but if you've had a soft tissue injury, ice can slow the healing response, right? Because inflammation is the first part of your three healing phases. So you don't necessarily want to shut that down. Now the new one is um, from the British Journal of Sports Medicine. They published one a little while ago that most people are talking about now. It's called peace and love. But basically you have protection, elevation, you've still got compression, but the L in love is loaded movement. So Hmm. you're really looking at gradually introducing the musculoskeletal system just responds so positively to the right level of stress. And that usually means load, whether it's kind of mobility exercises that challenge it, and then really moving towards resistance training. Wow. Because I used to get ostracized by athletic trainers. This is probably 10 years ago when my colleagues in sports medicine, there was kind of a unique little group of us. And these folks were doing things a little more on the cutting edge. And I was telling the athletic trainers that one of the schools I was, I was like, you guys probably need to start moving away from ice because here's what we're finding. And they're like, you're an idiot. just put ice on it. And I'm like, well, I'm talking to my friend over here, Randy Ballard, who runs sports medicine at this prestigious place. And he works with Olympic athletes. And then here's what the literature is saying. You know, here's the early papers on this. And it was like, no, 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 no. But this is what we've been doing for 25 years. So just shut up and walk away. It's so great now that like, you're just seeing this as being more common, like get 
I have a friend in an NFL team I will not name that I'm talking immediately post-op. Like, let's say they had a shoulder labrum tear. They're getting him underwater hmm. and starting to get the joint moving. Mm-hmm. And they'll put the, they'll, they'll have a certain way to, uh, to bandage the sutures. And then they can at least like start dropping underwater and passively they're getting range of motion and they come up passively getting, I mean, like crazy, like immediate movement. Yeah, I can actually see that, you know, because we see that a lot with total joint replacements in the knee and hip where people are in the hospital and they're up moving them same day, right? Like up walking and the shoulder, we would do these exercises immediately after like labral tears where they would do these pendulum exercises where the person's supposed to lean over. And yeah, just yeah. Like gravity pull their arm, but people always have a hard time being totally passive. So I could see the water thing could be really useful because in that situation, you probably can be really just passive. You kind of sink down and the water brings your arms up and uh-huh. works a little mobility. You probably, it's probably easier to stay passive in that situation versus like this old pendulum exercise we used to use. Yeah, this is so interesting. All right, Tom. So when it comes to living in pain, nobody wants to live in pain. We've all probably been there at some point or another. You say that there's basically three things that we can do about being in pain. Can you unpack that? Yeah. So what you'll see with people is that probably the default for most people is just do nothing. Like I'm just going to by that just kind of rest and protect this. And again, maybe my doctor told me to do the same thing, like just rest and it'll get better. And again, that can have its place early on to let the system desensitize, but it's not the best formula long term, your injury risk is actually higher later on. Because if you do damage a tissue, well, resting it is going to cause more deconditioning, more muscle atrophy, atrophy and weakness in all these tissues. And then when you go back and challenge it again, well, now your injury risk is higher because the capacity of that tissue has dropped. So do nothing might be okay for a few days. But usually not the best thing. And you see some conditions like rotator cuff tears that can turn into frozen shoulder if you do nothing. Some oh, that's the say, worst. Exactly. Like they, our neighbor just came over the other day with us. She had hurt her rotator cuff. Of course, she's holding it like it's in a sling and protecting it, which is the natural response. But doing that for too long can turn into frozen shoulder. And so you really have to be looking at starting to incorporate movement pretty early and being intelligent about that, right? Finding the movement that's going to stress it, but not stress it too much. So there's kind of that there's a do nothing. There are people that they'll seek out kind of other interventions often that are the ones that are not the most supported in terms of the research, but could be things like a lot of times it's complementary and kind of alternative medicine practices. It might be like cupping, or maybe they're doing acupuncture or dry needling or you know, maybe they're going to chiropractic, they're often these things that are out of pocket, maybe not covered by their insurance necessarily. And some of those things do have some research and can have their place. But I think we wouldn't say they're the things with the most the best evidence for most musculoskeletal conditions. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, you know, and of course, in that is go to a physical therapist too. like, you're actually just going to see a practitioner. So I would say that's probably the second group is like, hey, I've got health insurance, I'm just going to go find someone to try and fix this for me. And then the last idea would be more of a self-management concept where Mm. I'm going to educate myself on what I think is going on here. And maybe that is seeing the practitioner for one or two visits initially, or just learning about it online, assuming you can find the right resources and kind of... Well, I mean, you've got, I mean, an amazing book and an awesome YouTube channel for this. So... This is kind of where you go from being a passive observer, almost like I'm in pain. This sucks. I'm not going to do anything to I'm going to go pay somebody. I may or may not get the best treatment or I may just be getting like something that kind of dulls the pain for just a little bit 
to this, I'm going to take ownership for this process, this kind of self-management, I believe that there's kind of a blend of these two. At what point is it like, yes, this is an area where you should definitely self-manage to like, hey, you definitely need to go see a qualified practitioner. Yeah, it can be tricky sometimes. I mean, I think, of course, we are always wanting to make sure people understand, and we cover these in the book, these kind of red flag symptoms. Like if you have Mm -hmm. these, then yeah, just go have things cleared by a practitioner. Like, And it's usually clusters of things. Like I'm over the age of 50. I have a previous history of cancer. I'm having night pain and we cover all these and you can look them up online, like red flag symptoms. What are they? Hmm. After that, the truth is most musculoskeletal conditions get better with time and movement. So Hmm. you often really can do that on your own. And that's what any really evidence-based physical therapist is going to encourage you to do. They're going to educate you and then they're going to teach you exercise and movement strategies that you can use to self-manage your own condition. Really, the goal in therapy is to boost self-efficacy so that people understand how to self-manage. It's just like going to see a psychologist or a counselor. They're going to hopefully teach you strategies that you can take with you to enhance that kind of self-management idea. And so, again, most things are going to get better with time and with the right kind of movements, exercises, behavior modification. Of course, you have to look at, am I flaring this thing up? Maybe I need to adjust things in my life. If things aren't getting better, we usually tell people that if things are staying exactly the same or getting worse over uh, several weeks, then maybe that is an opportunity to go check in with someone. And Mm -hmm. maybe they can give you some insight on, hey, because a lot of times in those cases, it's just that the person isn't modifying behaviors enough or they think they're doing the right exercises, but maybe they're doing too much or then someone who's going to help guide you through that process. But it also helps you just make sure that you're clearing out anything more serious. Thanks again for listening to the Blueprint Podcast. And if you learned something new about pain, please share this with a friend. Take a picture of the podcast cover art, post it on social media. And if you have any questions for Dr. Walters or I, please let us know. Put it on social media. He's got over a million followers, but he is great at following up with questions. Thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you on the next episode.